There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome everybody to another episode of Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's medical podcast. Long form. Long, Long form. form podcast, unlike those short little five minute ones we've been doing, Matt. Hopefully people are still listening to the long form ones. The short form, heaps of people listening. They're loving it. I'm getting great feedback, which is really nice. Today we're talking about uh, a topic which is really complicated, really quite amazing and Personally, I think it's going to be revolutionary when it comes to gene editing and things like cancer therapies. Oh, so it's not about snacks. Not about snacks. Oh. So, so just just the name, it, that's what I thought it was. Why? Well, what's the name? Crisp. CRISPR. Yeah. Okay. No. Okay. Well, we might start the podcast again. Uh, so today we are talking about CRISPR, like Matt said. Uh, CRISPR is C-R-I-S-P-R. And it often is termed the CRISPR-Cas9 system. That's, uh, how I, that's what I refer to it as. Is it? Mm. You and your extensive genetic background? Correct. Okay. Correct. I actually have a PhD in genetics. It just didn't necessarily help me with this podcast because it's still quite complicated and I got my PhD before this really became uh, a technology. When that did we you get access. your PhD? 2015. Uh, 15, yes. And while this technology has... well. Let's just get into 2002. It. When they started using this technology? That was when the name was first coined. Yeah. Let's jump back a little bit, right? So there's a lot of complexity with DNA, but I think we need to distill it down to the basics being human DNA is double-stranded. Yep. It's made up of A's, G's, T's, and C's. When we want to make a protein, and proteins do everything in the body, we need to turn that DNA, transcribe it into RNA, which is single-stranded, and then read it and translate it into a protein. protein. 
And again, that protein does everything. Now, the thing is that that then states that the protein that we make is determined by the sequence of nucleotides in the original DNA strand. So if you were to change those nucleotides, you may change that protein. Now, it may turn the protein off and it no longer works because the change in the DNA meant that an, a functional region of the protein no longer exists, or maybe it adds a function to this protein and now it is overactive. So there's possible different outcomes by changing the DNA. And we need to be mindful of that when having the conversation about CRISPR. Okay. So this then is part of the reason why we want to employ this editing, gene editing technology where we could play around with the way that the genes are not manipulated, well, I guess manipulated in a way, but we could potentially edit them. So, yeah. so if you were to write a document, um, again, you're using the English alphabet, which has how many letters? 26. 26, there we yep. go. So okay. Probably should know that. <laughs> and so if you, uh, let's say you made an error with one type of word and it was a reoccurring error, what you could potentially do in that document is let's say do a control F function and find that word mm. and you could slightly either extract the whole word out and exchange it for something else yep. or you could do a, a letter manipulation. Yeah, just change it so it fixes the word. Right, and so CRISPR in a way is a similar approach where we can now use, but in this case the alphabet of the DNA is only four-lettered. Yeah. And we can look for genes, which is, let's say, equivalent to the word, and we can slightly modify that to make it either turned off or becoming more functional. So you could turn it off, you could turn it on, or you could change it entirely. And so what that then tells us is that CRISPR is gene editing. So when we look at genetic disorders... Um, sometimes we might hear these terms of a dominant gene mutation or uh, disease or we might have recessive. Can you quickly just tell us the difference between what a dominant... Yeah. So the first thing is that we should be aware that not all diseases and disorders are genetic in their origins or basis. Right. And that's important because it means that gene editing technology like CRISPR is not going to be a curative for all diseases and disorders, right. only those that, ha that are genetic in their origin. Now, to go back to your question about um, the way certain genes are inherited, we need to understand that while all the DNA in our body is double-stranded, we have two copies of this double-stranded DNA. One we got from mum, one we got from dad. So effectively, every gene that you have in your body, for example, and I'm going to oversimplify this to the point that it's incorrect, that <laughs> the gene that you have in your DNA that states that you have blue eyes, right? And now it's obviously... Multiple, there's a multitude of them. That's right. But let's just say there's let's one. Let's say it's one. You have two copies of that because yeah. you would have got one from mum, one from dad. Now, the thing is that most of the time, these genes are actually identical, the ones we get from mum and dad. But every now and then, there's some slight differences. A single base pair or nucleotide is different, or maybe multiple base pairs or nucleotides are different. And that may or may not 
change the way that that, like we said earlier, gene is translated into a protein and whether that protein has function. Now, there's two types of ways that we can inherit these types of genes. We can have a dominant inheritance pattern or a recessive inheritance pattern. Because we have two copies, the way I like to think about it is a recessive inheritance pattern. You need two copies of that gene to express the phenotype. Right. So, so now I've just um, introduced the word phenotype, which okay. means the way it's exp- the way it, it looks. Seen. When I look at you right now, I'm looking at the phenotype, the way it's expressed. So the blue eyes, you can see the blue eyes. Yes. So a recessively inherited gene means you need to have two copies of it in order for it to express the phenotype. A dominantly inherited gene means you only need one copy of this gene in its form to express the phenotype. And the other one, in a way, is quite redundant. Okay. So that's important because then when you start talking about the not just the way traits are inherited but the way diseases and disorders are inherited, some are recessively inherited, some are dominantly inherited. And that's important because... When it comes to recessive inheritance, you've got a backup gene, right? So uh, that is also important because a lot of the times if we have a mutation in one gene... And it becomes dysfunctional, you have a backup. That's right. right. That's right. Unless it's dominantly inherited. Yeah. Now, if you have a mutation in one gene... Can you give an example of a disorder? So th- think about it like this. Usually, dominantly inherited disorders is what we call a toxic gain of function. So the mutation that's present in that gene results in a disease or disorder that Overexpresses. has changed the protein in a way that it's now a toxic gain of function. The protein works, but in a way that's detrimental to the organism. Okay. And it only needs to be in one of those because it's so bad that it doesn't matter that the other one's good, it's overriding the good one. Okay. So you know, it, it's sort of like you and I. Let's just say... I do the right thing. You decide to do the wrong thing all the time. You start to smash things up. It doesn't matter if I'm still sitting here doing the right thing. You're still smashing the room up, right? right? So all people see is you... A broken sm- room. ...breaking everything up, mm-hmm. right? So that's a toxic gain of function. But with recessive inheritance, the mutations that are present usually inactivate the gene and result in a loss of function. And this is why the redundant or spare gene is important because, again, if you and I are these genes and there's a mutation in me and I stop working, I just sit here, you can still keep doing the podcast. You can keep talking. And so there's redundancy right. in the system. So, And is that like with an example of a recessive disorder, then sometimes it doesn't become present, so it doesn't become phenotypic until let's say later in life, is that kind of because it, it's kind of function wears out? Yeah, so there's something called haploinsufficiency. And so sometimes uh, there are, and, uh, so Parkinson's disease, for example, there's a couple of uh, genes that are recessively inherited and with certain mutations in them can result in Parkinson's disease. But often everything looks fine. There's no problem. The phenotype seems absolutely normal, quote unquote, and then later on in life, they present with this disease or disorder because there was a problem, but the backup gene is able to make up for the issue. But then over time, it's not enough, right? Okay. It's almost like it loses steam. Yeah, yeah. And, and then the disease is able to manifest. Right. Yeah. Okay. 
So before we get, is there anything else you wanted to discuss? No, I think that um, we just needed to preface these concepts because the way CRISPR works, and we'll get into the nitty gritty in a sec, is that for genetically in, genetic diseases, it could be genetically inherited. So it could be in a germ line, which means sex cells. Um, so an example of that could be haemophilia. Yes. yes and so that right. would be, it's an X-linked um, genetic uh, alteration. Yep. And because females have two Xs, they generally, if they were to have this uh, faulty gene, they have the backup they carry to, what to, we over, to overcome it. And so then they may not phenotypically demonstrate it. Yes. But because males only have one X chromosome, then that's it for them. They don't have that redundancy like they do with all the other chromosomes. And so then they would not only have it in the genetic, genotypically, but they would also express it. Yes, that's Phenotypically. Right. Yeah. So I think that's really important for us to understand is that CRISPR and other gene editing technologies, but CRISPR is the paramount one and obviously the topic of conversation today. Um, and I think what you often hear the conversation when it comes to CRISPR, it, focusing on cancer. And the, and the reason is because cancer, by definition, is genetic. It's based in our genes. Cancer arises because mutations occur in very specific genes, often two major types, tumour suppressor genes, which turn cells off and just say, hey, stop growing, and oncogenes, which turn cells on and say, hey, keep going. Keep going. And often the mutations in the tumour suppressor switch it off so it can't stop the cell from growing, and the mutation in the oncogene is a toxic gainer function, right? And turns it on and keeps it going. Now, there's obviously other genes that sort of work in and around that promote um, metastasis and tumorigenesis, and obviously these are going to be mutations in genes that produce proteins that can change the way that a cell metabolizes uh, a, a nutrient or the way that the blood vessels grow into a tissue. Like, There's obviously other things that happen to promote tumor growth, cell growth, and so forth. But it's all in the genes. And so the purpose of CRISPR is to be able to target these particular genes and change them and fix them so that it limits, stops, halts the growth of these cancers. Right. And so even before we get to CRISPR, there were some uh, gene editing technologies that were utilised. Yeah. Um, but they were more rough, rough and ready, I guess you'd say. Yeah, so very much. I'm not really sure... You may know this, but I'm not really sure in what era humans started to play around with genetic um, coding and so forth. Mendel. Like <laughs> 50, what well, was in the 50s when we discovered DNA officially, Yeah, but right? Mendel the monk ba- back yeah. in the 1800s was playing with the genetic makeup of pea plants. Well, that, okay, that, that brings an interesting point up. So, and I know you've had pushback with your students on this at times where we generally think oh, look, when we genetically modify things, um, this is us you know, playing God, essentially, yeah. right? But essentially we've been doing this since we're humans, right? Oh, well, so, I mean, from my understanding, the at least domestication, possibly the first domesticated animal was the wolf. Yep. At least from my understanding, that's something that's been evolving with us alongside our own kind of adaption evolution. Yeah, we've genetically so modified Possibly 30,000 years um, running beside us, literally. Yeah. Um, but we have, you know, plants, wheat, 
bananas. Oh, look, there's probably the, not a fruit or vegetable that you ingest that isn't genetically modified. And I think the, the, the point we need to raise here is that genetic modification, the thought that it starts to bring into people's minds is a scientist in a lab sticking a pipette into a banana, right? <laughs> That's not what's happening. I mean, you can genetically modify plants by crossbreeding them. Yeah, so that's right? so that's going to what you were talking about with the monk. Yeah. So um, the monk in when did you say it was? Eighteen hundreds. Basically, um, Gregor Mendel, the monk, basically looked at the phenotype of these pea plants by the color of their flowers, and then got a paintbrush, little paintbrush, and got the sperm of the animal, which is the pollen, and then rubbed it on the ovum of other plants to see how you call this it plant ma- and animal do. You? <laughs> Oh, did I say animal? Yeah. Sorry. Uh, the ovum of the other plant yeah. and to see what effect that would have. Yeah. He but, genetically modified them. Right. So then there was an idea of this, this, these outcomes being what would occur. Yeah. But then we started, when we had a better understanding of what DNA was, which again, Crick and... Well... The, yeah. There's what, three of them. Let's, yeah. Correct? Yes. Yeah. Um, People tend to focus on Watson and Crick, but it, it wasn't. Right. Really, at I least mean, a th- there was a third as well. Yes. Now, then there were other things that we were doing with DNA randomly, where we would just I don't know get seeds and then X-ray them, and that would just put mutations into the the DNA, and then they would see what kind of outcome would come about from doing that, and then see if there was a an improvement or something. Yeah. Let I'll me be- just add Rosalind Franklin, yeah. Watson Crick, Rosalind Franklin. Rosalind Franklin had the X-ray of DNA, didn't necessarily recognised what it was, showed it to Watson and Crick, and they went double-stranded helix. Sorry, just wanted to say, because everyone talks about Watson and Crick when they were only part of the discover- discovery. But continue, I apologise. So then as we got more understanding of what this uh, this code was doing, mm. we started to try to manipulate it more accurately. And so pre-CRISPR, we would start to do things more rough and ready where we would chunk bits out and throw it in. Well, we and didn't even know what we were doing. They were all guesses. We didn't know whether the, the changes, the genetic changes we were making, were going to result in, let's just say, a fruit that would have a seed so big that there was nothing edible present or whether we were making a fruit that tasted better or worse or was toxic or not toxic. And I mean, it was a blind approach to playing with the DNA of the plant. Yet, because people see it as quote-unquote natural because all you were doing were transplanting aspects of one plant to another and crossbreeding them and that anybody could really do it, it was, oh, no, it's, it's natural, it's fine. But in actual fact, what we do in the lab today is far more precise and specific. Right. We, we don't just put our blindfolds on and just take a bit of DNA and throw it in and hope for the best. We look at genes that we know translate into very specific proteins that have an important function, and we can take that gene and we can put it into another plant. No different to what we've been doing for centuries, right? right? But we're just more specific and direct about it so that we know what the outcome will be. So when people lose, and I think it's happening less and less and less, but when people lose their mind about genetic modification of foods, honestly everything you're eating is going to be in one way or another genetically modified from its origin. I mean, you and I are genetically modified, right? I mean, that's just what biology is. Our genes are constantly being modified by our environment and our interactions. 
We're not this static thing. My DNA isn't identical to the very first organism that existed on this earth. However, it did originate from it, but it's very different. Right. I mean, we're more related to fungi than fungi are to plants, right? So it means we have a common ancestor, right. but are we the same? No, we're not the same. We share 60% of our DNA with a banana still, right? So Speak for yourself. Well, yeah, you more so... <laughs> 60% so, of your DNA with a gherkin or maybe a squash. <laughs> anyway, egg, I just want to quickly I just want plant. I just want to quickly highlight the pre-CRISPR gene editing days which was around the the late 80s 90s. Yeah. What they basically did was they isolated the gene that was causing the potential change in the phenotype of the individual. It could be like certain biochemistry issues like orthothene um, which uh, the amino acid. Ornithine, yeah, yeah. ornithine, which would ha- result in the way that biochemistry, the, the person would process ammonia. So yeah. in kind of within the urea cycle in the liver, if they had a deficiency in this gene, they basically couldn't clear ammonia and that would become toxic. Yeah, And so some of these conditions, they tried to insert a whole chunk of a functional gene into an individual cells ex vivo, which means outside the body. So they took the patient's cells, put it into a dish, and then did it in the dish so they could reintroduce it back into the body. And so some of the downstream effects of this, or off-target effects, which kind of put a halt to this gene editing approach, was either it would stimulate the immune system, and at least in one case, I think the the patient was Jesse, 18-year-old female, who died within about four four days oh of reinserting her own cells. Because of a huge immune response. Yes, that's right. Um, and the and immune response was because it had a bit of DNA added that it recognised as non-self? Or it could be um, partly because we introduce it through viral vectors, so we use viruses. So explain what a, a, a vector is. A vector is, I guess, an abil- uh, something that allows us to inject the or gene introduce, or introduce. yeah the, the gene or the DNA within to the, the the cell itself the host cell yeah okay. it's a way of carrying in, uh, things generally speaking but here information or DNA and so for example just to interrupt people will often call um, mosquitoes a vector a vector for malaria right. so it's a carrier of malaria to help introduce malaria into another organism. And there's many types of vectors that we can use in biology and particularly gene engineering and so forth. One of which is viruses because we know viruses are really great at introducing DNA into organisms. But all, and Now, they're, they're inactivated viruses, by the way. So they take things like adenovirus. Um, yeah. and, inact- and that actually was um, the approach that they used with um, one of the vaccines, we used a, a viral vector. Yeah, well, that's to, actually very common, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. And so you take the, the virus, you inactivate the virus in the sense that it can st- you can still use it to introduce DNA, but it's n- it has no virulence. So it means that it, your body's not going to translate any of the viral um, genes into something that causes a disease, right? right? So it's inactivated in that sense, but it still introduces the gene that you want. But because it's viral and exogenous and comes from something else, your body may recognise it as foreign. You may have an immune response, like you said earlier. Yeah. The other type of vector that we often use in um, uh, biotechnology or within genetics, 
uh, molecular biology, whatever, um, <laughs> are plasmids. So plasmids are actually bacterial DNA um, or, or actually part of bacterial DNA. They're sort of separate to bacterial DNA. They're sort of standalones, um, but they're circular aspects. Is this how they share? Yes. This is how the bacteria share genes amongst each other? Yeah, so the way humans share genes are through sex and having offspring um, and the way that bacteria share genes are through plasmids. So they can actually what we call translocate their own DNA and say, hey, you know, I've, I've, I've got this gene, you may want this gene, and they literally hand it to the other bacteria that incorporates it into their genome. And that could be a good example of how bacteria become resistant to antibiotics. They, Absolutely. You might have a, a slight... Alter, not alteration, but there's difference within a small population of bacteria in a, in a patient that has resistance to penicillin. Yeah. And they may be the only bacteria that survive that dose of penicillin, but they can share that plasmid with their neighbours and say, here is what you need to overcome the penicillin. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you have a big population of bacteria that is now resistant. Penicillin. penicillin absolutely so we can take these plasmids and we can because it's a circle we chop it and open the circle up and we add our own gene into it close it back up again and then we can introduce that plasmid into a cell or body or whatever it may be generally yep. we're introducing it into cells in a dish but you can introduce that into an organism so that it expresses that gene, right? So they, like you said, these are so these the more the, traditional. Yeah. So the ways. two the two big drawbacks with the pre CRISPR approaches were um, the immune toxicity, yep. but also the oncogenesis. So we were because we're just chucking big chunks into the genome. What could result potentially is that we create a oncogene. Yes. And it then makes and in in these cases, an, another example of these. Early '90s were um, patients would develop leukemia. Yeah, yeah. And so this kind of, I guess, put a halt on things until they looked at alternative approaches. Instead of doing the big chunk in DNA, they looked at maybe slight manipulations. Yeah. And this led to how we first understood what CRISPR was, right? Yeah. And I think, like Matt said earlier, like you said earlier, is the traditional forms of gene editing is like taking a saw to the genome and just chopping it, right? It's sort of rough, ready. You might damage it more so than you wanted to. Um, but then when you compare it to CRISPR, what we have now, it's like taking a scalpel to our DNA. It's very specific and fine and precise. And so is it now time for us to really, 30 minutes into the yeah, podcast, can you, can you talk introduce, about CRISPR? Can you introduce... Of where it was discovered. Sure. So back in 1987, the year I was born, uh, a team in Osaka, Japan, what they saw when they were looking at E. coli was that there were these... The bacteria. The bacteria, you're right. Uh, they saw that there were these stretches of DNA or segments of DNA in the bacteria around about 30 to 40 base pairs long that were... They repeated and they were clustered in very... Sorry, microphone just dropped out. They were clustered and very um, uh, into very specific areas. They repeated and they were palindromic. What does that means mean? They were read the same way forwards as they were backwards, right. like kayak oh, yes, or okay. race car, right? So, so they're clustered, they're regular, they're repeating, and they're palindromic. 
and they were interspersed or interspaced with other segments of DNA, which they had no idea what it was. And so they didn't know what this thing was. They published this in 1987. They didn't give a name for it really. It definitely wasn't called CRISPR then in 1987. And then it took about a decade after that, even more, I think about 15 odd years, before researchers looked at it and went, hey, these aspects of DNA, these are clustered, repeating, palindromic segments of DNA. That's actually not the interesting part. They were focusing on that, came to nothing, and then realised, let's have a look at the spaces in between these repeating bits of DNA. And they realised that if you... Now, there's this program that I use throughout my PhD um, called uh, BLAST, where you can take a DNA segment and you paste it in to the computer, to this database, you press, press the button BLAST and it compares that DNA section with every organism on the planet that has been genetically screened. Right. And it comes up and shows you other organisms that it's similar to. So what they found was that these spaces in between the repeating spaces, um, they matched to v- fragments of viral DNA. And they're right. like, wow. Okay, so we've got bacteria containing 20 to 30 base pairs of viral DNA and either side it's surrounded by these repeating, clustered, palindromic sections of DNA. Interesting. They then started to screen this in more bacteria and more other types of organisms like archaea and they found that these sections of DNA were present in up to 50% of bacteria and 90% of archaea. Okay. So they're very common. And what they called these were CRISPR. And CRISPR stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats. And it makes total sense. The clustered areas, so it's not spread throughout the entire genome of the bacteria or archaea. It's in very discrete, specific areas. They're regularly interspaced. So you've got the palindromic repeats Mm -hmm. there in the name interspaced by bits of DNA that come from viruses. And you call that CRISPR. Now, in actual fact, some bacteria and archaea can have hundreds of these interspaced things that we call spaces. So the viral DNA in the genome, we call it a spacer. Right. You can have hundreds of these spaces. Would the bacteria use those for any reason? Yes. So... If it's, let's just say it's got 100 spaces, it means that it's effectively stolen fragments from 100 different viruses, right? Right. And it's incorporated those fragments into its own genome. Okay, so... And its purpose, which you asked, is to remember the virus that had previously attacked it. Okay, so one quick step back. For a virus to become successful in it, in its reproduction, because we generally would consider viruses to be not alive yeah, because they don't conduct biochemistry or can reproduce on their own. Yep. All viruses are generally are, are packages of genetic information, whether they are RNA or DNA, but they would um, infect a cell yep. and that could be human cells, animal cells, plant cells, but also bacteria. Yep. And they can in insert their genetic information. And that virus is generally called a bacteriophage. Okay. If it infects a bacteria. A bacteria, all right. And then, then it can tell the bacteria to reproduce its machinery for it to then have its offspring. 
Is that yeah. correct? I think that's yeah, that's great. Viruses yeah. are packages of, of DNA which it can't now remember we spoke about earlier, DNA needs to go to RNA, which then needs to be translated into functional proteins. Yep. And basically if you look at viral DNA, it's the blueprint to make more viruses. Yep. And viruses are functional proteins. Okay. Right. So but it can't make itself. So yep. like you said, it hijacks the machinery of whatever that organism cell. and then says, in this case the bacteria, hey, transcribe my DNA into RNA, then translate it into a protein, and then it repackages itself and then the, into the, a virus and then legs it and goes to other bacteria or other organisms. And would you assume that, I know in humans it generally would result in the cell either dying on its own or being killed off by the immune system, Yeah. but would a bacteria or an, or an archaea die from... A viral infection. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay, yeah. So, so basically what we're seeing here is... A, a kind of like a historical map if we look at the genome of these bacteria or archaea on what viruses their uh, forefathers have been. It is a memory of all the viruses that has infected it in the past and all the and remember a bacteria isn't like us. It doesn't have a lifespan of 70, 80 years, right? It may have a lifespan of minutes to days. Okay. Right? And so in actual fact, a, a bacteria is as successful as its offspring uh, and so it doesn't replicate through um, sexual reproduction like we do. It's through binary fission. It splits in half, just makes copies of itself. So effectively, its offspring, like you said, its, its forefathers and its offspring will have basically identical DNA. And so the bacteria today that we have will have a genetic memory of the viruses that infected it possibly tens of thousands millions. of generations, oh. millions of generations ago, right? So these, these, these sections of the bacteria, archaea's um, genetic blueprint yep. are chunks of the viral um, RNA DNA. Yep. And... What spaced between them, yeah, you have the repeating palindromic segments of and DNA. And so why would a bacteria want to hold on to that? Wants to hold on to it because of the whole CRISPR system. And what it does is it doesn't just remember it because that's pointless, right? It's like saying, oh, yeah, I remembered my attacker, but then when you see that attacker again and they just attack you and knock you down, you're like, yep, that was him. You know, it's unless you do something about right. it, you need to be able to recognize and then Respond. respond. And that's what this does. It allows for them to recognize and respond. And the response is through this CRISPR-Cas9 system. So just to go back one more step, I said that when a bacteria takes a fragment of the viral DNA and incorporates it into its genome, once it incorporates it into its genome, after that incorporation, it puts one of those repeating palindromic segments. And then if it gets infected by another virus, it puts it in after that previous palindromic segment and then it puts another palindromic segment so then you've got these interspaced what we call spaces that's yep. the viral dna the spaces flanked by repeats and like i said you and that is what we call crispr now you can have hundreds or tens of them or whatever and they're called crispr arrays so bacteria and archaea will have crispr arrays in their genome and we didn't realize this until it would have been maybe 15, 20 years ago. And they first discovered it really in um, like food biotech. So did you know that... Yeah, I've got, I've got 2002, the CRISPR term was first coined. 
2002. There you go. And it was utilised not as a necessarily gene editing technology, um, you know, to be able to effectively, and we'll talk about how it changes DNA, but it was utilised in cheeses and yogurts as a way to improve the process because you need bacteria to make these products, right? So, but the rate-limiting step was bacteriophages were killing off the bacteria as they were making vats of yogurt and cheese. Okay. So, they used CRISPR technology to just keep introducing new viral fragments to make them immune so that they couldn't die off and you could just keep making more cheeses and yogurts. And every single cheese that you ingest today on this planet has been produced through some sort of CRISPR technology. Wow. Just so you know, whether it's on a cheeseburger or whether it's, uh, you know, grated on a cheese platter or a cheese platter. But we haven't spoken about how it actually works yet, right? So how it's useful. So couple of things. First thing is that when a virus or a bacteriophage in this case, so let's talk about a bacteriophage attacking a bacteria, it comes in. They look like a spaceship kind of. Yeah, like, they do. Like, don't like they? moon landers. Yeah, it looks like a moon lander. And right at the bottom of the moon lander, it injects its viral DNA, which often is double-stranded DNA. So it injects it into the bacteria. The bacteria has two proteins called Cas1 and Cas2 which stands for CRISPR-associated protein 1, CRISPR-associated protein 2. These two proteins are enzymes, and they bind together, and they now form molecular scissors. They will go to the viral DNA, and they'll chop it, and they'll chop a fragment out. The question is, how does it know where to chop? It always chops at an area upstream of a very specific sequence of DNA called a PAM, which is a protospacer adjacent motif. So basically, it scans the viral DNA until it finds this very specific sequence and goes, there it is, and then it counts maybe four or five nucleotides upstream of that and then chop, chop, and chops a fragment out. Okay. And so now what we've got is a fragment of viral DNA around about 20 to 30 base pairs long, and then it incorporates it into the double-stranded circular bacterial genome. Okay, so is this in conjunction to the virus being replicated in the cell as well? So is this happening simultaneously? Yes, yes. Similar to when we get infected by a virus, we are both suffering the consequences of the infection from the virus replicating, but at the same time we're creating a memory of that virus so that next time we get infected we don't get as sick. So in a, in a way that this is the bacteria's adaptive immune system. Perfect. It's exactly what it is. It's, it's the bacteria's adaptive immune system, which we never thought they had, right? We thought everything was sort of like our first line of defense, in, our innate. innate immune system where it's just like... Non, it, non-specific. Yeah, didn't care what was infecting it. It would just attack it and kill it the same way. Not the case. Okay. It was very specific depending on what virus infected it. So now we've got Cas1, Cas2, chops the viral DNA steals this fragment of DNA, which we now call a spacer, right? When it chops it in the viral DNA, it's called a protospacer. But then once it takes it and incorporates it into the bacterial genome, it's called a spacer. And how does it know where to put it in its own genome? Those PAM regions, right? So it incorporates it and puts a repeat behind it, one of those clustered palindromic repeats. Now we've got the fragment of viral DNA incorporated into the bacterial DNA, into the double-stranded DNA. So 
the next step that happens is that we need to transcribe that double-stranded bacterial DNA, the same way we do for ours, right? So we need to turn it into RNA. And again, you take one strand, a template strand, and you copy it and you create a complementary strand of it. And so what happens is you have these RNA polymerases that come in and they make a copy of the template. They create a complementary RNA strand of the entire CRISPR array. So it's made, let's just say, a repeat, a spacer, a repeat, a spacer, a repeat, a spacer, a repeat. And so you get this entire CRISPR array and we call it pre-CRISPR RNA. That's what that's called. Single-stranded. Yep. Now here's the thing, a really cool thing. The bacteria create has more RNA polymerases, right? Goes to a totally different area of its genome and transcribes more RNA. And interestingly, this RNA that it transcribes are very small fragments and this RNA has stretches of it. Let's just say if it's 100 base pairs long, it will have maybe 15 nucleotides that match perfectly with the repeat, right? The, that CRISPR repeat, the palindromic repeat. Okay, yep. And then it will have another section that doesn't match, but then maybe 15 base pairs down, it has 20 base pairs that match as well. So it sort of loops in and has parts of this long strand of RNA, parts that bind to the repeat and parts that don't. And it just ends up having this loop DNA with parts of it attached and other parts not. This is called tracer RNA, T-R-A-C-R, similar to CRISPR, C-R-I-S-P-R. So this tracer RNA is now bound to the repeat, not the spacer. It's not bound to the part that has come from the viral DNA, Mm -hmm. just the repeats. Mm. So what you now have is a pre-CRISPR RNA strand, this really long strand with spacer, repeat, spacer, repeat, spacer, repeat, and then attached or bound to the repeats is tracer RNAs. So you'll have one RNA for one tracer, then you'll have another RNA for, uh, sorry, one tracer RNA for one repeat, another tracer RNA for another repeat, and another tracer RNA for another repeat. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Now, what we have is we need an RNAase pair of scissors to now chop up this big long pre-CRISPR RNA yeah. with the tracer RNA attached to it and it chops it up so that you and this is the thing that's very cool it will chop up this pre-CRISPR RNA so that it has a full spacer only part of a repeat with a tracer bound to that repeat part and it does that for the entire pre-CRISPR RNA so it creates all of these spaces with a part of a repeat, with a tracer RNA molecule attached. That's now what we call CRISPR RNA. So CRISPR RNA is two RNA strands. One RNA strand is a full spacer, so a full 
bit of DNA that comes from a virus mm-hmm. with a little bit of a repeat and bound to that repeat is the trace RNA. That's the second piece of RNA. Now, what comes along is a protein called Cas9. It incorporates these two RNA strands into its core. Now, picture Cas9 as like a bean, yep. right? Like a kidney. Now, we know that what's the part of the kidney that's got the internal f- smaller flexion to it, the smallest edge, shortest edge? You ask me this Yeah, question? like the internal. I'm trying to think the best way to explain it to the audience. If you've got a bean. You mean like the hilum? Yes, like the hilum. So if you take a bean, you're obviously going to have... Yeah, the concavity area. Yes, the concave part. Okay, so picture Cas9 like that bean. At the concave part, the spacer is sticking out of it. So it's not embedded in the Cas9, it's just sticking out. But embedded in the bean, embedded in the Cas9, is that part of the repeat and that tracer molecule. Now your question might be, what the hell is the point of the tracer? It anchors the RNA strands into Cas9. Okay. I heard, um, and I wish I remembered his name, but I heard a, a lecturer say that it's like having your glasses where the arms of the glasses which attach to your head, mm. that's the tracer RNA, but then the repeat and the protospacer is the, gl- the rest of the glasses in the frame. Okay. Right? Or the, the lens and the, the rest of the frame. Now what happens? Well, what happens is we've got the spacer hanging out. And the spacer will be complementary to a viral DNA. So next time a virus attacks, this Cas9 protein plus the CRISPR RNA plus the tracer RNA together, they're the three things you need. This is why it's called the CRISPR-Cas9 complex or system. It can go to that viral DNA that is attacking you the spacer binds perfectly with the viral as it, DNA. As it's getting injected in? Yes, for okay. the next next infection, right? Okay. The spacer binds perfectly with a, a complementary aspect of the viral DNA. That's great. And then the Cas9 protein will snip, snip, and cut both strands of the viral, viral double-stranded DNA. DNA. Which inactivates it. Yes. Now... The thing is, a lot of people say, well, why does it inactivate it? Won't it just fix itself? All DNA can fix itself. Not the virus, right? It doesn't have its own machinery. Mm. So when you chop a virus up, it's not going to fix itself. So it's gone. It's effectively useless. And that's the immune system. That's the adaptive immune system for bacteria. That's how it works. Now, you can probably sit back and go, okay, I can sort of see how we could hijack this for mammalian cells, our cells, to make changes. So I want you to think about this now. Let's just say I were to introduce this CRISPR. No, let's go back a little bit. I said to you that in the Cas9 protein, you've got two RNA molecules, right? You've got the CRISPR RNA, which is made up of the spacer and the part of the repeat, and the tracer RNA. And they're just bound through hydrogen bonds, right? The same way one DNA strand is bound to another. But what you can do is you can actually make them all one RNA molecule by adding a few base pairs to link them up. The blunt ends of them, you could link them up together. So they're just one bit of RNA that's just looped in on, on itself. Okay. You can do this in the lab. When you do this, you create one single guided RNA called an sgRNA. And so that means in the lab, I can actually create my own spacer repeat tracer RNA to go in Cas9. And... 
That means if I can make that spacer anything I want, I can direct it to any part of the genome and chop any part of the genome. Double-stranded. Perfect. But this is where this is the important part of it, is that if I were to do this in any one of your cells, Matt, you have the transcriptional machinery to fix the break. So we've got a double-stranded DNA break. There's two main ways that your cells can fix a double-stranded break. One is through what's called uh, non-homologous end joining. And this is simply where you just glue those ends back together. Now, often, if you just glue those broken ends back together, the transcriptional machinery inside just will either add a random nucleotide or take a random nucleotide or maybe just take a couple or add a couple. And many times this inactivates that piece of DNA. So the, it, the gene, like that, that... That portion of DNA, if that sits within a gene, then that gene's inactivated. Right. Right? Because you've either added yeah. nucleotides that are no longer compatible with that gene, or you've removed nucleotides, which means, again, that gene's no longer compatible to turn into a protein. It's inactivated. So many times... So non- that, is that... Would that be termed a frame shift mutation? It would be a frame shift if something was added or removed that then altered the way that the amino acids read. Because as the listener is probably aware, we read amino acids three nucleotides at a time. If you remove one, then you've shifted the reading up or back. And if you've added one, you've shifted the reading up and back. So you've yeah, ch- yeah. everything after the place that you've added or removed, every one of those amino acids will likely be different. That's called a frame shift mutation, which very much so would change that protein, often inactivated. So non-homologous end joining with CRISPR often inactivates genes. Yes. And the term we use for this is called a knockout. So you can, for example, if I go, and we're not using it like this in biology, by the way, this is just as an example. If I go, huh, that gene that makes your eyes blue... I'm going to turn it off. I put this CRISPR-Cas9 in. I know that the RNA molecule, the single guided RNA I've made, that's embedded in that Cas9, it targets that very part of the DNA that I know will ultimately be transcribed and translated into a protein that gives you blue eyes. And I'm going to chop it and I'm going to rely on non-homologous end joining to bugger it up. Doesn't fix it very well, turns that gene off. I can now have a look and see how it's expressed. Have a look at the phenotype. And that's what we can use CRISPR-Cas9 complex with non-homologous end joining for to turn genes off. The other way, any questions? No, no. Okay. The other way that we can repair these double-stranded breaks is through what's called um, homology-directed repair. So HRD. No. HDR. HDR. Homology-directed repair. Now, this is where CRISPR becomes super interesting. So again... CRISPR-Cas9 comes in, chops both strands of DNA, but this time, remember we said earlier on that you actually have two copies of your DNA. So I may have just cut two strands of the one DNA, but you've got another one left. So what can happen is one of those busted strands goes into the other strand and uses it as a template to just fill in the gaps. So it's a more specific, accurate way of going, oh, this got cut, what nucleotides are we missing? Ah, here's a template. Copy, 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 copy. Would that copy, be considered copy. an allele? No. A, an allele is, yeah, just a discrete copy. 
of a gene. So we tend to have two alleles of, of every so gene. So one from mum, one from dad? So one from mum, one so from dad. So is that dad. what it's doing? Yes. So it's going to, yeah, let's just say we, we chopped mum's yeah. version that she gave you. Yeah. One of the broken strands jumps into dad's. It's all there, reads what nucleotides are missing, fixes the gap, then jumps back in to its broken DNA strand. And now it's used as a template to fix its original broken strand. And now it's fixed. And that's a very more specific, directed way of fixing the DNA to remove errors, right? So that it's still a function, ultimately going to be a functional gene. But researchers are like, wait a minute. If it uses a template, why don't I just introduce whatever template I want? So I can create my own CRISPR RNA to guide it wherever it wants to go in the genome to make a very specific cut. And then I can add my own template to say, hey, fix it with this instead. And now I've just added a whole new gene into your DNA to what we call a performer knock-in. That's interesting. So I can now add a gene to be expressed. So I might go, you know what, Matt? You don't contain this particular gene. I want to see how it looks on you, the way it's expressed. I do this um, homology-directed repair using a template of a very specific gene. It adds it into your DNA, and I can watch it being expressed. So basically what... you what you can do is through this uh, CRISPR technology that we've hijacked from the bacteria, yep. the bacteria basically through its own intrinsic system is when it gets infected by a virus, the virus puts its genetic information in, which essentially will be incorporated into the bacteria's genome. But when that does occur, the bacteria can make RNA from that, which... Yep incorporates itself into a protein which we call Cas9. Yep. And when a bacteria well, when the bacteria gets infected again by that same virus, that complex comes along to the viral uh, RNA or DNA? DNA. DNA. And what's in the tracer that's incorporated in the Cas9 will read a section spacer. Spacer. Will read a section of the viral DNA. Yep and go, hang on, I've seen this before. Yep. What I'm going to do is I'm going to deactivate it and just chop it That's in right. half. That's okay. right. Now, for we're hijacking, hijacking that system. So we basically take bacteria's Cas9 complex. Complex. The CRISPR-Cas9 complex. But yep. now we can maybe alter what's inside it. Yep. So that's the... Um, the arms of the glasses. In actual fact, th- there's three things we can alter, just to interrupt very quickly. We can alter the RNA template to tell it where we want it to go in the DNA. We can alter by adding a template to say, fix it with this, right? Or add this. And you can even alter the Cas9. And you can alter the Cas9 to break it in different ways. Okay. And I think this is what they did, right? Where they, because we're essentially, um, removing machinery from a bacteria it's to us as humans it's foreign proteins yeah and so because we are taking fragments from bacteria that that may come from families that are pathogenic to us like a lot of these bacteria that they've done the um, research on like streptococcus or staphylococcus yep are pathogenic bacteria to us so it's likely that Humans have incorporated in our own genome, um, particularly our immune system, uh, adaptive technologies that if we encounter a 
bacteria protein, we have antibodies against it. Yeah. So there's a possibility if we were to incorporate this CRISPR technology with the Cas9, you know, the bean thing, bean protein, yep. that we have already have antibodies to it. Yeah. And so that could be a limitation. Yes, because we might say, hey, that shouldn't be there. That's bacterial. I'm going to attack it and destroy it. And so that then negates the whole yes. technology, right? Because One of the limitations. And now the other one that I came across was um, in, instead of doing, you know, double-stranded breaks, we can do le- more intricate breaks. Yes, that's right. And like that's by altering that Cas9. Or there's even other Cas proteins that can be used for these types of breaks. But yes, you can alter it to have different, many different types of breaks. The other beautiful thing about this CRISPR-Cas9 complex is that historically, traditionally, in uh, molecular biology, for example, like in my PhD and my research, it was really difficult to add a single mutation right into a cell line, let alone multiple why, mutations why, discreetly. Why? Uh, because the way that we, we couldn't be so direct and accurate each time. So it would take many uh, attempts and many times most of the cells didn't have the change that we wanted and we had to pick and choose the cells that ended up having the mutation and propagate those. And you can only really do one at a time. Doing single nucleotide changes was really hard. Doing chunks was easier because you could just chop out and and glue back in. Um, But again, you couldn't do multiple areas at the same time. Makes sense. You can with CRISPR-Cas9. And the benefit here is how it's actually mostly being used at the moment is for screening. So when we think about cancers, we spoke earlier that cancer is a genetic disease and that often the mutations will occur either in uh, tumour suppressors to inactivate them or oncogenes to amplify them or exaggerate them. Or both. Or both. Uh, Uh, Or amongst others. Amongst others, that's right. So... What we can do, and this is an example that they've done recently, is they've taken um, colon cells and they've gone, okay, colon cancer, very common type of cancer. It's killing millions of people every single year. We don't fully understand what genes are involved and not just that, not just the genes, but also what type of mutations in those genes result in this type of cancer. So CRISPR-Cas9, you can actually take those cells in a dish, for example, and you can incorporate many mutations in many genes in many different areas and have a look and see, look at the phenotype. How does it grow and develop? And does it look like the type of tumours or cancers that we see in vivo in a person with bowel cancer, for example? And so if we can recapitulate that or copy that in the lab, we know exactly what genes are involved, what types of mutations, where they are, and now we can target them to fix them. So that's what we need to do is the screening. We can also then, once we create cells that are virtually identical to the tumour or cancer cells that we make, we can then throw certain chemicals um, or, 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 drug ta- or drugs onto them to, again, screen for successful treatments. And so this is how CRISPR-Cas9 is actually being used most commonly is for screening. So just within an in vitro environment. That's right. But but also having the capabilities. So instead of thinking it's solely being used in human models, you could also utilise it in animal models where you may develop, you may have an idea of what the disease 
phenotype is. So this could be an Alzheimer's disease. This could be a Parkinson disease. Yeah. This could be Huntington's disease. This could be cancer. And you could manipulate the genes of a mouse model. Again, either a knock-in or something similar. Yep. And then you have... Or knockout. The closest that you can get is this, you know, this disease model, like a bowel cancer model in a mouse. That then you could not only try to experiment diagnostically to how better can we screen for pre-cancer states, but also we could even do what what kind of environments. So this could be just, you know, cancer in many cases, like you said, is a genetically based disorder, but it could be from a background of an inherited gene mutation yep. with uh, an association of an environmental or a multitude of environmental stimuli, right? Yes. And so you could but have... People should know, just... Uh, uh, sorry, super quick interruption, but people should know that regardless of the origin of the cancer or the, the earliest preceding cause, it's all genetic. So whether, yes, yes. whether it may be inherited through a parent or whether it's... An environmental thing like sun, chemical, exposure, whatever, all the effects, all the things that result in cancer are genetically based. Yes, yeah, right. Sorry. So you then might have an individual that's, you know, always going to get bowel cancer. Nothing that they could do about it. They're going to get. They're going to get it because it's just sitting there in the gene, right? And it's waiting gonna, for that time for it to express. That's right. Eventually, it's going to come out. But if you expose it to a certain environment, and this is what could be studied within the, the mouse models, is you could maybe feed it a, a, a certain diet, and or change the biota or the bacteria. Or, sorry, of the the gastrointestinal tract, and you might see this becomes protective, or this maybe brings the cancer out. Years ahead, absolutely, and so then we could have a better idea of, um, of how the disease manifests, but also the treatment regime. Yes, and I think finally, unless there's other other things you want to say, which I'm sure there are, but one of the things, and, and this for me is what I believe to be one of the most promising aspects of the CRISPR-Cas9 system, and its various iterations, which is going to be a multitude of already are, um, is that I personally believe. And I might be wrong, don't hold me to this, but I personally believe that cancer will, within a generation, be a thing of the past. Um, I, I personally think that and hope that my generation will be the last generation to die of cancer because this technology is advancing so quickly and its ability... I mean, children have been cured of certain blood cancers because of CRISPR technology. That was an impossibility a decade ago and so it's only been a handful of years since CRISPR I mean honestly it was in the I think it was 2012 um, researchers started to say we might be able to use CRISPR as a gene editing tool for cancers so that is not much more than a decade ago and now we've cured people of cancers and so I personally think that my generation our generation the listeners generation unfortunately and fortunately at the same time, we'll be the last generation to die of cancer um, because we will be able to screen people, let's just say at birth, and go, oh, look, you've got these particular genes with these particular mutations in them. It's not going to be necessarily definitive. Some might be, like certain BRCA mutations. You've got a, such a high likelihood of developing breast cancer from those, for example, and other types of cancers. 
and might be able to go, look, there is a mutation that we're so confident that at some point you're probably going to develop a cancer from that. Let's use CRISPR and just change it. And yeah. then you've, you, you will not develop that type of cancer. Now, it might be a little bit different when it comes to things like skin cancers where you get exposed to UV light in your 30s and then a few years later you start to develop a, a skin cancer of some sort. But there's no reason why CRISPR technologies won't be able to address that once the cancer is then present. Yeah, and that kind of goes to... So we've understood today how CRISPR in principle works. But yes. But some of the, sometimes the application is what limits the, the the type of therapeutics it can be used for. Yeah. So, by and large, what I've what I've seen is most of the clinical trials that have been used more well, using CRISPR has been probably more successful in what we call ex vivo approaches. Or this so is again, the, take the tissue, put it in a dish. So it's the way it's delivered. So I'll give you an example. One of the first ex vivo clinical trials that have been used, and it's. Um, getting pretty close to releasing the stage three trial results. They still have to follow these patients for longer periods, but quite promising results where they have individuals, let's say, with a type of anemia. So this could be uh, a thalassemia or a sickle cell anemia. And so genetically caused diseases. This is where there's a alteration in the hemoglobin molecule of the red blood cell, which changes the way that oxygen can bind to making maybe making it less efficient but also the shape of the red blood cell which can then lead to certain um, micro thrombi which is not only painful but potentially is deadly for the individual and so what they can do is they can remove blood from the individual and in the blood um, peripheral blood smear they can isolate certain um let's say, progenitor stem cells. So these are cells that are likely to have children that will become red blood cells. So they're not mature yet. And they contain the mutations Correct. for these diseases? Yep. All right. And so then... But they also have the potential to create progeny. That's right. So that when, you are, when you're a mature red blood cell, you can't do anything further with it. Okay, it's stuck. It's going to be how it is. Okay, it's going to survive for 128 120 days and then it's going to die but if you can get a stem cell it can have multiple generations so if you can alter that then you may have um, benefit in what it what lineages it produces you alter that you alter the generations that's right so they can pull these um, blood cells out they can do a CRISPR approach to it so they can change the hemoglobin that's dysfunctional and they can express a different type of hemoglobin, which they call a fetal hemoglobin, which is the hemoglobin that we use when we're an embryo. Right. Okay? But that kind of switches phenotype when we're adults. Yep. But yep. unfortunately, the diseases, um, that's the diseased one for these guys. Okay. 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 So they alter it, then they put it back into the, um, the individual, but at the same time, they kind of ablate the rest of the stem cells in their bone marrow. Right. So they, so, like... Use radiotherapy to just... Or chemotherapy. Or chemotherapy to just destroy all the cells within the bone marrow. Correct. Because they're going, look, they're bad. Yes. Let's knock them out. Yep. I'm going to introduce Or just edited. kill them. Rather than say knock out because we've already used that term. Oh, just true. Let's just say kill them off. Okay. Yep. And yep, so yep. these progenitor stem cells then can go and reside back into the, into, into the bone marrow, take hold again. Become and resident stem right. cells. Yep. 
And so it's, it's, it's shown some promise that not only do these stem cells recolonize the bone marrow, but then the percentage of hemoglobin in the circulation now is, you know, 60% fetal hemoglobin. Right. And that's not a problem? Not a problem. It's not as uh, potentially efficient as the adult hemoglobin, but it's better than what that... Sickle cell anemia. Correct. Yeah. Amazing. So, so that's an example. So that's an excellent... So we don't have stage three results yet? Uh, well, the the clinical, clinic, the clinical trial was published in um, New England Journal of Medicine. When? But, Do you know? Uh, 2021. Okay. Um, and? Oh, very promising. Awesome. But it still have to follow out the the stage three to just ensure that's no off target effects. Right. So what do you think is the future of this? Uh, do you agree with well, my, the, the other thing I'll just say before I get to so my, <laughs> is um, the advantages of doing an ex vivo approach is that you can be m- much more tight and regulated in your manipulation because the way you manipulate is outside the body. Yeah. So you can be much more sure that what you've manipulated with the cells before you put them back in is safe and accurate. Yeah. But the limitation by the ex vivo approach is, well, it may be difficult to get those cells that you're going to put back in to the target that you want it to reach. And you're not editing everything. Right. You're editing a subpopulation. And unless you ablate or destroy, like you said, all the other cells that are still present endogenously, you know, it's sort of like a competition. Yes. And so, uh, but I think we'll find ways around this. This, is, this then goes to the in vivo approach. Okay. Where you can actually put your CRISPR in either through viruses or even through similar to, similar to what we saw with MRA COVID vaccines. mRNA, yeah. Is that what I said? You said MRA. Okay. I just said the N very quickly. Okay. Um, that you tell your cells to make the the CRISPR technology for you. Yeah. And it, it does the manipulation in that group of tissue. Unfortunately, no one trusts mRNA vaccines anymore. Not at the moment. Not at the moment. Which is, uh, which is sad. So the benefit of this approach... I'll take it. ...is it's um, in a way less invasive because you don't have to pull cells out that, that, that can be from discrete locations. Yeah. You're just putting it in. A greater, wider range of target approaches, but the... The challenge is how do we restrict it to just doing that one thing and it may produce a lot more off-target effects. Yeah. So what, are, what is your – what do you predict for the future with this type of technology? How do you think it's going to – do you think it will be – how significantly beneficial or not do you think it will be? Well, I think the one uh, challenge with cancer that we have to remember is cancer in itself is its own organism and so it's not a homogenized group of cells all those cells are trying to survive themselves right and so this is part of the problem with they're really not your cells anymore are they? that's right they're like a separate organism and so they're trying to survive within you and if and this is part of the problem with you know uh cancer therapies is they are evolving to that therapy. So as we're throwing chemotherapy at it, whether it's the traditional ones or even immunotherapy and so forth, that they're trying to adapt for their own survival. And so their populations are changing. So even if we uh, are trying to figure out, like you 
talking about with colon cancer, ways of screening and identifying, then maybe they're altering as well. And so we have to keep in pace with them. Maybe. But my uh, rebuttal to that is... um, we are edit. We will be with CRISPR editing the earliest known basic cause of the cancer, which is the DNA. Oh, yeah, and, with, the, and with that yeah, edited, especially if it's um, preventative. Yeah, I, I think. Yeah. I mean, that's going to be its biggest application. Will be as, preve- as a preventative um, technology. F- you screen. You identify. You alter. You or even the, the the requirement. Or even a an alternative to that is. In a way, we could look at cancer therapeutics a bit like um, vaccine technology, yeah. where we know that we use vaccines inoculate for your immune system to then target, you know, that virus when it comes into your body or that bacteria. We can use the same approach where, and this is, I think, the CAR-T. CAR-T, CAR-T yeah. Where Was we, it chimeric antigen receptor technology? Yeah. So we, or T-cells, sorry. And there's like 250-odd clinical trials in this space. Yeah where basically what they're doing is getting T-cells, maybe let's say the, the cytotoxic T-cell, which is uh, the killer of the T-cells. This is that example of the le- le- young girl cured by leukemia that I was telling you about. They use the CAR-T technology. Right. So they what they can do is because the T-cells are adaptive immune systems, so they are specific to usually the, the pathogen that you're being infected with, you could do the same approach but do it to the cancer cell. Find... The, you mean to the T cell, the, the antigen on the cancer cell. Yeah. So you saying you said do it to the cancer cell, but you mean use the CRISPR technology for the T cell. Correct. Yeah. So you need to find, like we spoke about, we need to find the particulars of, of that cancer. Yeah. Okay. So that could be done in an animal model, or that could be done by taking the cells of the cancer out and going, well, what's the identifying factor of this? particular cancer that's different to your own cells because you don't want to kill your own cells off yeah so and so our, our body has little flags on its yeah. surface to say hey i belong to you even though your can even though your cancerous cells are your well at least originally were your cells they do express certain protein flags that make them uh, distinguishable from other cells right. so sort of like cancer flags and so lo- what you're saying is that you could train the t-cells to recognize yeah, those so flags maybe like say where's wally yeah. Right. So where where's Wally? Where's this red and white beanie? Right. Yeah. And so that's makes him distinguish to the rest of that really busy, you know, picture book scene. Picture book scene there. Yeah. And so you can tell your um, T cell this is what you need to look for, and it becomes an assassin. You release it back into the body, and it could be done in the blood. Yep. Through IV, and then it goes, and then attacks and destroys. And it, once it, it comes across that particular antigen, then it what a cytotoxic T-cell does is just kills the cell. Yeah. And then that could also be an approach. So I think, I mean, and it is, right? Like we've, we've utilised it. So I think the great thing about this CRISPR technology and its various iterations, are it's um, wide-reaching, right? It's broad. It's going to be utilised in a number of different ways. It's not going to be a, a one-way approach. It's going to be utilised in many different ways. And again, I'm really excited. I think this is going to be a huge shift in uh, disease burden for the future. I mean, cancer is still one of the biggest killers. Number three in Australia. Yeah. One number two. Outside of cardiovascular and metabolic disease. Um, cancer. Yeah. 
well, and COVID over the past two years, that's been a big killer. But yeah, it's it's uh, it's exciting. And but it, I but hope it does. Found this interesting. I don't want to go too deep down this path, but it does raise ethical concerns. Yeah. Uh, particularly if you are starting to look at manipulating genes in germal cell lines. Yes. So we've spoken all today about somatic cell. Yeah. But there has been well, at least one example I've heard in uh, 2012 China. Was that right? 2018. Yeah. 18. Um, where a scientist altered, um, sp- was it both no, sperm cells uh, for HIV resistance genes, and then through IVF fertilized the oocytes and then um, introduced those blastocysts into a surrogate, and then she gave birth to twin girls, and that's as much as we know. That, that's it. It hasn't been peer reviewed, and I don't think the individuals have been followed. But this does – and I think this is the biggest pushback that the other scientists throughout the world gave was the ethical concerns around this because it does totally. then not only impact that lineage but it could alter lineages to come. Absolutely. and Because the, the off-target effects not only is well, we, the, the, hard, the hardware change but also you could have even epigenetic changes, right? That's right. So, yeah, this, this researcher uh, by the name of He Zhang Kui, um, like you said, gene-edited um, c- cells so that they were more HIV-resistant, created embryos or blastocysts, implanted them into a woman, that woman gave birth to twins, and now these twin girls have uh, – they're, they're walking around in society. This is 2018 – so what would they be, four years old now, five years old? Um, they're walking around and says, we don't know who they are. They've been de-identified. I'm sure the Chinese government knows who they are and where they are and keeping eyes on them. Um, but and, uh, but uh, he, being his name, he uh, went to prison for three years, only got out, what, last year or 2021 or something, um, and now works for a biotech firm doing similar stuff. But there's a huge ethical concern here because if he was able to do it, um, what does that mean for... And look, and, and he and may have had the best of intentions, right, looking at HIV resistance, but what if, for example, you want to change a trait right, that yeah, isn't yeah. necessarily there to reduce somebody's and risk of disease? And that's the movie Attica, right? Yes. Which is basically germal cell manipulation. Yes, to and produce superhumans. Superhumans. Yeah. So you can change traits that you of wish it's dated but it's good and i didn't realize for many years that attica is just the genetic code yeah a t t a c anyway um so yeah look that it's uh, he went to prison for three years got fined like half a million dollars and um now works for a biotech company doing genetic engineering and the chinese government have this is the thing you know you need to have really strict ethical and moral rules and regulations around the way this works and most countries really do, but I'm unsure as to how this happened because there's many steps to this process. And people, may, people who aren't in the research field may think, oh, you know, he's just a single scientist doing it in his lab. No one knew. He did it all by himself like in the movies. That's impossible. Yeah. It's impossible to do this without doing it in a lab that other people are accessing, that other people are in, and without using the expertise of other individuals. 
As a researcher, he may have been able to do the genetic manipulations with CRISPR, but he definitely wasn't performing the uh, IVF, right? Yeah. He wouldn't have been trained to do that. That's a very specific field. And, and as we all know, that is not just as simple as injecting some cells and saying, off you go. There's hormone therapy treatments. There's, you know, this is a process that would have involved... Well, you have to extract the, the eggs... You have to do the yeah the fertilization yep. outside, and then you have to do the um, implantation. This would have involved at least a dozen people, at least, in a big, well-funded lab. Multiple labs, actually, because mm. they all wouldn't have done the IVF. And so, I mean, if you sit back and you think this is not something that just happens because of one lone weird rogue rogue scientist, it's not the case. I mean, it may have been how they sold it and said, oh, yeah, look, he's been reprimanded. He's in prison. Don't worry about it. He went rogue. This is bigger than one individual. Anyway. And just to reassure the listeners. um, We're not doing this. (laughs) This is not regularly done in the Todorovic lab. No. No. um, (laughs) When we do research either with animals or humans, it's very tightly regulated with uh, ethics, animal ethics, Human ethics and Matt, how long does it take for you to do a an animal ethics application? Well, my my research is in neuroscience, and I look at just nerve repair, and it, you know it's it's heavily scrutinised now, which is good for, for good reason. Good, but you know, uh, for the the number of animal use, why you need to use animals, why you need to use that number, why is that number robust, etc., 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 and all the uh, ethical interventions that will be used to ensure that the animal is not suffering and so forth. But, and that's not with animals that are even approaching genetic modification. And so that's when right. you start to do genetically modified organisms, it's even... So a lot way, of my work was GMO. And you had to... I, I didn't do animal work. I just did cell work, right, with, with, with genetically modified cells. Um, the approval process, storing the cells... Transporting. Transporting, applications. And even disposal. Disposal, having people come in every X amount of months and reviewing your lab to say, hey, where's everything being stored and where's this and where's that? I mean, it's it's, it's a whole big thing as it should be. Yeah. Um, but just, yeah, just so the listener knows, this is extremely tightly regulated. But in saying that, if done well and done rigorously, this will be life-saving. Yes. And that, my friend, is CRISPR. Oh, quickly. Yeah. Um, no mailbag this week. What happened to it? Uh, <laughs> it uh, must have had a hole at the bottom of the, mail, uh, the bag and then the mail dropped out. Really? So no, so no emails. No. Well, in actual fact, we do have some, but oh, we just did, didn't get them sorted. No, I, well, I haven't received any. Did you I, get some? Yes. But, oh, okay. But I didn't prepare, <laughs> prepare them. All right. We'll, le- we'll leave that for the next the one. Next one. Yes. Is there any final remarks you need to make? Yeah, I should. I should have probably said it at the very beginning of the podcast. Uh, if you want to support us, you don't need to give us any money. Um, I mean, if you want to, that's actually fine. But uh, no. In a suitcase? Yes. At one, what corner yeah, of what street? 1 p.m. on the corner of 5th and 3rd on the 17th. Uh Subscribe to both our podcast and our YouTube channel. Um, Please watch, like, view, comment, give us five stars. Do all the nice kind things that you would do to help support somebody that you like. Um, 
If you uh, want to contact us, send us an email. Our email address is gubiosciences at gmail.com. So G-U-B-I-O-S-C-I-E-N-C-E-S at gmail.com. Or you could just go to our website, which is drmattdrmark.com.au. So D-R-M-I-K. I'm just checking that now just to make sure it is, is working. D-R-M-A-T-T-D-R-M-I-K-E.com.au. And on the homepage, you, there's an area that says reach out. There you go. So reach out, send <laughs> us an email, ask us a question, give us feedback. Um, we do this uh, because we love doing it and we like helping people understand the human body and how everything works. Apart from that, I mean, you can follow us on social media at Dr. Mark Todorovic on all platforms. Don't worry about following Matt. He doesn't have social media and even if he did, he's boring. That's true. So it's pointless. I barely like doing these podcasts with him. So apart from that, Matt, thanks for nothing and listener... We love you. I'm off to eat some crisps. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.